You're on the Plants Grow Here podcast. I'm Daniel Fuller. Come along with me as we enter a hidden world of deep horticultural, ecological and landscape gardening knowledge with featured experts, industry professionals and enthusiasts. Have you ever wondered what's involved with keeping bees for honey? Cormac Farrell is the head beekeeper at the Australian Parliament House and in this episode he helps us understand bee behaviour and beekeeping best practices so that you can have a starting point to begin your beekeeping journey or at least you'll be able to hold a conversation with your beekeeping friends and clients. Please share this episode with your friends and colleagues so that they can get on your level and be able to talk about beekeeping too. Thanks so much for coming on the show, man. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Oh, it's, it's been something we've been meaning to do for ages, so it's fantastic to be here. Yeah, and the internet seems to be holding out so far so good, so fingers crossed. Yeah, I've got everything turned off. I have a right. an annoying <laughs> OneDrive that loves to update at the worst possible time, and I've actually gone into the settings and said, you will not update. <laughs> <laughs> So Cormac, can you start off by telling us about honeybees? Like, what are they? Honeybees, Apis mellifera, we've just figured out recently, were originally an Asian bee, an Asian insect. And about 100 million years ago, bees were wasps, and they decided to become vegan hippies. Instead of eating meat and other animals, they started exclusively feeding on flowers and nectar and pollen. and that started this huge explosion. And so bees now, there are 20,000 species of bees in the world. The one we most know and sort of love is the honeybee, Apis mellifera, but it's just one of thousands and thousands of species of bees. And not all of them make honey. In fact, most of them don't. Most of them live quite solitary lives or semi-solitary. But the one thing they've all got in common is they help plants breed. So when you see flowers now, most of those are the result of bees. Not exclusively. You've got other pollinators like birds and bats even and, and lots of moths and other insects. And beetles are a really big pollinator. And flies do a lot of pollination. So all of your oranges are due to flies. But pretty much bees are the ones that do most of the heavy lifting in, in plant reproduction. So the world around us has literally been shaped by bees and certainly the colourful parts that we, we really like as gardeners. And is there any way that we can differentiate a true bee from, you know, a wasp or a fly or something like that? That is definitely a question for an actual entomologist. I am a fake entomologist. <laughs> yeah. I'm a I'm a botanist um, <laughs> primarily, but yeah, the it's to do with the arrangement of the wings and also the segmentation. Like I, this is I'd have to look it up. Basically, it's the the bees tend to look. Wasps, to me, gender, tend to have swept back wings a bit more, um, and bees certainly have double double sets right. of wings, and that gives them their, especially honeybees, give them this fantastic flying ability. They're one of the best flyers of any animal, basically. So when we're talking about honeybees, these are not solitary bees. They're a colony. They sort of exist. What, what do you term that? Is there a term for that? Yeah, so honeybees are what's known as a superorganism. So the bee, the individual bee, can no longer live on its own, and it has to live as part, as an integral part of a, of a great big, what's called a, a superorganism or a colony. And the communal bees are relatively rare compared to other bees. Uh, honeybees, the weirdos of that that sort of small cohort, in that they don't go to sleep, they don't ever sort of stop. They stay awake all the way through winter. And they live in cold environments. And the adaptation they've had to develop to deal with that is to have this gigantic store of honey. Because if you don't go to sleep and you don't die off, which is what a lot of the other bees do, that's how they that's how they survive winter. They lay eggs and then the adults die off and then the babies hatch in spring. Whereas um, for honeybees, they, they try and tough it out as a big colony. So they, they stay as a big group, a relatively large group for by bee standards. And they have this huge store of honey. So they actually eat the honey and then run their wings in neutral to generate heat, to heat up the colony. So that's what makes honeybees sort of unusual and different, but also kind of special because because they can't live on their own. They have to communicate and they have to co coordinate with other bees. And that's created these amazing, intricate communication systems that bees have, that honeybees in particular have to sort of tell each other 
where to find food, to tell each other, okay, we're all going to swarm now because they can't do it on their own. They have to do it as a coordinated group. So they're one of the most communicative animals, basically, on the planet. And we're still learning so much about them. But that's what makes sort of honeybees a honeybee, is it's not just the honey. They're, they're actually not the only bee that produces honey, but they are right. honeybees are unique in the sense that they form these gigantic colonies. Right. And I guess within those colonies, there are a range of different roles that individuals can play. Yes. And, and the crazy thing is bees have a career progression. So they, they <laughs> start, when they first hatch out, they become a cleaner. So the first thing they do is they clean the cell, the honeycomb cell they've come out of. So they hatch out very much like a caterpillar does. They're laid as a little grub. They develop into a larvae. Eventually, the larvae then spins a silk cocoon around itself and pupates when that's exactly like a caterpillar would. They dissolve their whole body and then rebuild it. Then they hatch out as a fully formed you know, insect ready to go. And, uh, and that's for the worker, worker bees. And they, they start by cleaning the cell. Later on, they, they then start building honeycomb. Actually, sorry, between that, they, they become a nursemaid. So they look after other baby bees. And then once they're finished with that, they, they become a bit of an architect. They start building new honeycomb. Eventually, they progress through to taking and receiving product. So when the foragers come in, so they can get straight back out there to collect more, they just drop it off to one of the, one of the house bees, as they're known. And the house bees take that product and stash it and put it in a certain arrangement. And it's not random. That's the kind of the cool thing. They're constantly, they're like, they're like running a warehouse. They're constantly restacking the shelves based on what, what's happening with the colony. As it grows and builds, they move stuff around because the honey always goes in the top of the, of the colony because it's their insulation. So nothing in a bee colony does just one job. Everything's got lots and lots of different roles. So they're packing that and then they start to become, once they, they move to the entrance, they become a, a guard, just guarding the entrance for a brief period and then they go off and they forage. And most of the colony is foraging. So a kilo of honey, I often say, represents about 2 million flower visits. So, and a colony, you know, when you think about it, the colony eats almost all the honey they produce. So when we take honey off a colony, we'll take maybe 30 kilos off a colony. But that's a small fraction of what they've actually produced. They've eaten most of that to sustain themselves. We're only ever taking the surplus. So that represents just millions and millions and millions of flowers that have to be visited. And that means their workforce has to go really, really hard and they can never stop. And hence their, their, that, that general ethos and that, under, that iconic working hard as a honeybee idea, is, is, it's not imaginary. They have to, the foragers have to work constantly. And then the last thing they do is they become a scout. And their job is to find patches of flowers for the whole colony. And the scouts are actually why they're so important for our agriculture. So honeybees are used for supplementary pollination for a whole lot of crops. And how it works is once you get the scouts to find the crop you want them to pollinate, usually you do that by putting them in the middle of the crop. Let's say it's almonds. They, the, the foragers, the scouts go and find the, the source of flowers. And they're not just looking for a flower. Like I said, there's, there's millions of flowers have to go into each kilo of honey, so they have to find a, the biggest patch of flowers they can possibly find, and they then come back to the colony and they do something called the waggle dance, which is their sort of most amazing innovation. They they do an interpretive dance, which is sounds nuts, but it actually works really well. And they give them cord, they give the foragers coordinates, and they say, you know, fly in this direction from the sun, you know, this angle from the sun, and fly in that direction and go this distance. And then here's a little dose, here's a little sample of the nectar. Use your, your, use your antenna, which is actually their nose. They smell in stereo and smell that out and you'll then find where to go. And once the, once the colony's locked on to the flowers, they have something called a very high flower floral fidelity. That's a fancy word of saying once they've decided to start foraging and eating a particular crop, they will stay on that crop until there's nothing, until there's no nectar left. And that's really important for agriculture because once you get them foraging on your orchard, they won't stop until the flowers stop. And so for if you're doing supplementary pollination to produce you know, more and better fruit, that's exactly what you need. But we've realized now it's not just the, the honeybees are supplementary, 
That's an important point. More than half of the actual pollination is still being done by wild pollinators. So they're, they're essential for our food in the sense that they imp- increase the yield and they increase the quality. We can't live without them. Like we are, we are reliant on them. We, we would die without bees for sure. But they're not the only one. They're not, the honeybees are the cherry on top. They're not actually the main, the main workforce, which is kind of interesting. Hmm. Yeah, that is really interesting. So I guess we've got a whole range of pollinators like beetles and even mosquitoes, as we sort of talked about. But also native bees. So you've got, yeah, you've got, so in Canberra right now, we have about 300 species of native bees that you can have in your garden. And I think one of my colleagues, Dr. Peter Abbott, he's a native bee specialist and he grows, he's, he's got his garden set up to try and get as many, you know, he's like having a basically like a, a bee Pokemon game here, trying to get as many as he possibly can in his garden. I think he's got I think he's got over 150. I think he might be getting close to 200 species that he's recorded in his garden now. And, and they, they range enormously from, from generalists, which are honeybees. Honeybees will sort of pollinate lots and lots of different flowers and they'll sort of figure it out based on if there's nectar there, they'll get it basically, which is good and bad. But then you've got specialists and they will look, they, they, these are bees that are locked onto just one type of flower, sometimes even just one species. There's a famous and really sad cartoon by X Z Y Z about a, about an orchid bee where an orchid has lost its bee, so the bee died has died out, and the orchid is now in a death spiral because it can only self pollinate; it can't it can't outcross anymore. Um, so it's just becoming inbred and slowly dying out, and uh, because it, it needs its pollinator, and the pollinator no longer exists, and we know the pollinator exists because the flower um, has created like a the it looks like a bee and the male bees try and mate with the flower and that's how they spread the pollen. But it's kind of sad because for some of these species, but it's also, it's an important lesson that if we lose bees, they're what's called a keystone species. They don't just, it, it doesn't just lose the bee, it loses everything that that bee is supporting. So it's all the plants the bee is pollinating. So that's the plants can't move, they can't, they can't pass their genes between plants without an intermediary like a bee. And we'd lose the plants, but we'd also lose all the species then that rely on that plant and rely on that fruit. So when we we talk about keystone species, that's what we mean. It's the linchpin. If we pull it out and if we lose it, everything else falls apart as a result. It just sort of cascades through the ecosystem. So hence, bee conservation is a big deal. <laughs> hence, hence why people <laughs> yeah. are so focused on it and why it's so important because they're, they're not. it's not just about the bees, it's about everything else. Yeah, well, while we're on that topic, what about the negative impacts of European honeybees on native, you know, our native bees? Is there any impact or is it fine or what's going on there? Oh, no, de- definitely. They definitely have an impact because they're such, they're such a large and efficient pollinator. And like I said earlier, they're what's called a generalist. So they're able to forage on a wide variety of plants. They tend to go for the more of the open daisy style flowers, but they're not limited to that and they'll certainly forage on native vegetation. There's a a really cool study that was done, I think it was in Ecuador, where there was a national park that they did allow honeybees to come in and they they then tracked in detail the the, the change in the the flora in the plants. And when honeybees were present... Big, big, big nectar-rich flowers suddenly became their their breeding success went through the roof because they were getting pollinated really intensively, and the smaller flowers are being disadvantaged by that. But also the the native bees are being crowded out. So that's the danger: is that if we don't manage it carefully, you'll get this crowding out effect of of honeybees can crowd out native native species. So generally, though. There aren't enough honeybees in most environments to cause a significant problem because there's lots and lots of flowers. And certainly in most urban areas, there's lots of European style flowers, and that's more than enough for bees. So the the impact is relatively low. Mm. However, the big issue is feral bees and feral hives because mm-hmm. feral bees get into native natural areas, national parks and state forests. They They move into hollow logs, for instance. And they, they set up shop. Now, there's two things happen then. They're crowding out the native species, but they're also, but they're also using up a hollow. And, and hollow-bearing trees are a critical resource for so many native animals and, and birds and, and marsupials. So the way to fix that, though, is for honeybee keepers to be responsible. 
you know, it is sort of it's on us. And there is it's good that there's a big push to do good, you know, do, do effective swarm control. You know, because honeybees can't just hive, just take off into the wild blue yonder. They have to move as a group. Um, you can usually detect that a swarm is not a particularly subtle thing. You know, it's <laughs> it's up to thirty thousand bees moving as a group. It's incredibly <laughs> loud. But also, when you're doing your re- if you're doing regular inspections of your managed hives, you can see the signs that they're getting ready to swarm. They start to make baby queens. You can spot that. You can then split your hive, control the swarming urge, and then join it back on or create a new hive if you want. So that, that's, the, that's the way you manage that. The one thing that has, has helped a little bit is that there's, ironically, there's a couple of pests that are sneaking in now, particularly small hive beetle, African hive scarab beetles. They're very effective, especially in coastal areas, in taking out honeybees, but they don't really go after native bees to the same degree because they, they're geared towards their specific pest of honeybees. Mm. They snuck in through our border a while ago, but I know some of my colleagues that work in coastal ecology, they were saying it's the, the hive beetles have been very effective in removing honeybees from the environment. So in that sense, they're almost like a biocontrol. It's not particularly desirable. What it does do is that, especially in coastal areas where most of the hollows are actually, you've got People who have managed hives like myself, we put traps in to trap the beetles, and that protects our hives from the beetles. But if the the bees don't have a beekeeper looking after them, they're in they're really in for a bit of a struggle, and that's good. That's a good thing. That means that we've got managed hives, which is where they're meant to be, and we can control it, and we're all we're all registered, and that's a way to maintain manage that density and manage disease effects and the like. But then you've got this, um, you know, sometimes you've got parts of the environment fighting back i guess yeah but but short story is it's 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 manageable it's manageable but we do have to actually manage it you know bees should be thought thought of as honeybees are livestock that's the really important thing and and keeping honeybees to maintain conservation it's it's a lot of people say it's almost like keeping chickens to save wild birds and i think that's a little bit unfair because honeybees make you think about the landscape a bit more about pesticides and and forage density, but it's a it's a reasonably good analogy that you know honeybees are not native to a, to Australia that, and you can do both. Like I've I've got both right now. I've got a honeybee hive in the backyard, but I've also got native bee hotels, and you need both, especially in a garden situation, because honeybees don't do buzz pollination, which is needed for all of the Solanaceae plants, your dianellas in the native garden, your dianellas, most of your your kangaroo apples, those things. They all the Solanaceae's all need buzz pollination where the bee hangs onto the flower and actually vibrates its wings to release the pollen. And the pollen actually won't release until a bee makes it release by buzzing its wings at a particular pitch. It's kind of cool. But the nearest analog to that is tomatoes. So if you've got tomatoes, they're either self-pollinating, but if they're being pollinated, they're actually being pollinated by a blue-banded bee. So the armagilla bees, the native bees are doing most of the heavy lifting for your tomato plants and your eggplants. And those things. So, if you want really good a really good garden, you need honeybees, but you also need native bee hotels sort of spread throughout the place to get get some of the leafcutter bees and those other sort of super pollinators in. So they don't produce honey, but in terms of food production, they're critical. They they probably that's the main the main thing when you become a beekeeper. You start to realise that it's not about the honey; it's actually about the bees themselves and what they do in the environment. It's a bit like with plants, we say it's not about the plants, it's about the soil. Oh, yeah, yeah, you're growing soil. You know, that, that's, <laughs> that's what I love about, about botany. It's, it's all about the um, – I, I love composting. We could do a whole thing on composting, <laughs> and it's, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. Well, I still haven't done one yet. I mean, we're 87 episodes in, still haven't done a composting. Episode. You haven't done composting? I know. My God. <laughs> that's... I thought that would be – First I would have thought that'd be like you know number three number maybe yeah I know um, just haven't got around to it oh yeah well, got to go. get there soon hey <laughs> are there any other ethical conversations that people are having around bees the one I find really interesting is is around vegans because it's kind of a line ball situation for vegans as to whether they're prepared to eat honey and as a beekeeper, I think the greatest compliment I've ever had was one of my vegan friends said she was prepared to eat my honey because she knew <laughs> the philosophy I took into beekeeping. 
because you know it is an animal product, you know, and and very there are very strict vegans, and they will not, they're not either don't, they don't wish to use animal products at all, and I, I respect that, I understand that. Most vegans are a little bit more lineball uh, around honeybees. Now there are some really terrible practices in some parts of beekeeping. They will do things like clip the wings of the queen bee, and that that stops her from flying out of the hive with a swarm because the swarm leaves with the old queen. So some people do that. No one I know does that. And I think it's sort of one of these strange things. I've heard of people doing it, but every beekeeper I know who's heard of that practice finds it abhorrent and won't do it. So it's sort of interesting. I'm not sure. I've seen videos of people doing it, though. So it definitely, definitely happens somewhere. But I think other beekeepers would would not be not be friends, actually. Like it would affect you because you do sort of come to really love your bees. Mm. So I think there's that. I think the other thing is is feeding strategies and how much you how much you take off the bees. And some some unscrupulous beekeepers will take. Uh, it is a really big problem. They'll take too much honey and then they'll feed the bees sugar syrup to keep them alive during winter, and then make them sort of force them to sort of then make honey in the spring. It doesn't work very well. It actually results in pretty poor health outcomes for the bees. Like they'll stay alive, but they're not they're not really very healthy. And it's it's most of us will only ever feed as a last resort to save a hive that's about to starve in winter. But some people do it as a matter of course, and that's again that's a controversial thing. But most beekeepers would be generally would be certainly on a small scale like myself would not feed as a general rule. We would mm-hmm. we would leave make sure we leave enough honey for the bees. You know, so over harvesting is one of those things. And the other classic thing is like beekeepers just argue about lots of different beekeeping techniques and they, they all have their favorite hive um, everyone's got their favorite hive style um, <laughs> I'm, I'm unusual in that I, I keep a lot of different hives because I help a lot of different people I help a lot of embassies as well as we've got different hive styles at parliament in a demonstration apiary and I instruct in beekeeping so I have to know how to run lots of different hive types but most people they'll 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 settle on a hive that they really like and there's about there's three main styles of hive used in Australia, but worldwide there's about five or six different styles of hive that would be commonly used. And people tend to sort of gravitate towards one style of hive and they stick with that and they become very passionate advocates for that style of hive. The bees don't care, but uh, but beekeepers do. <laughs> <laughs> right, so there's not one that's bad for the bees. They're all good for the bees. The only one I'd say that you're not allowed to use here that is bad for bees in this environment is log style hives, and they're used really commonly in Africa. Mainly, it's a it's a cost thing. You know, you can get a hollow log there, whereas it's it's a beehive costs money, a constructed one. Though we're seeing change there, but they the log style hive is not allowed in Australia because you don't have removable frames that you can check for disease. So essentially, they they let the log fill up with with the colony. And then when it's full of honey, they'll actually harvest honey from the back of the log. They've usually got the, the there's like a false back on the log, and they open it up and take the honey out. It's it's fine in an African environment. That's fine because that's the natural environment for bees, and essentially they're they're treating them like a wild animal. And every now and then they open up the back and and steal a little bit of honey off them. There's a skill to that, but for Australia, we have pretty high standards of biosecurity, and you need to be inspecting your bees and also swarm control. For in in that environment, that's the natural environment for bees, and some European countries allow log hives as well because it's just you know it's nature. That's their that's part of their natural environment. So a swarm heading off isn't a problem, whereas in Australia, a swarm heading off is a big problem. And in a log style hive, you can't control swarming to anywhere near the same degree. So that's the one hive we'd say is not is not good. But that's not to say it's not good everywhere. Like in Africa, um, I've travelled through mm-hmm. Ethiopia and you know almost every village. In the centre of the village, had this beautiful would have a beautiful big tree with probably a dozen log hives strung through the tree, and that's you know that's pollinating their their crops, and it's providing honey for the community. So and often their churches. That was the cool thing seeing in Ethiopia. Beekeeping bees are a central part of their religion, so a lot of churches have a have a beehive in the roof, and they're African bees, and they're not mm-hmm. as they're not as let's say user friendly as our bees. So they, <laughs> it's um, it's definitely a, a big part of their culture. It's kind of cool, right? So there's African bees and European honeybees that are both producing honey. 
Yeah, and they're, they're basically the same species. They're different varieties. There are mm. some, it's not quite true, there are some species of bees that are still honeybees, but they are a little bit different. And that's where the so-called killer bees come from. Someone quite foolishly mixed African bees with South American honeybees. They got what's called the Africanized bee, which we don't have here, which is great. So their their defensive response is just dialed up to about fifteen. <laughs> they are you know normal bees are about a one or a two. You, you the suits there for just backup. You know if you didn't wear a suit, some people don't. I know some bee because they don't wear a suit, and they and they're just in tune with the bees, and it's fine. And most of the colonies I have are in that category. And then occasionally I get ones that are a little bit tetchy. If they're a really good worker, if they're a good colony, you'll you'll keep keep that queen. But usually you'll replace the queen to a better, a nicer, get a nicer genetics in there. But but then you've got the the really cranky ones, and they can be they actually hazardous. They're hazardous. I mean, they'll kill people. That's why they're called you know so called. That's where the name comes from. If they, you know, you'll normally get from a, a honeybee colony if they get angry. They'll, they'll sting you maybe 30 times a minute, whereas a um, Africanized bees are somewhere between 300 and 500 stings per minute, and more than about 300 stings is medically dangerous for most people. So, you know, 300 stings is a lot of stings, but in a minute with a full colony going nuts on you, it, it is, you could be under medical, you, medically you could be in real danger quite quickly. And um, certainly if you're allergic, you're in real trouble. So hence they. Um, Luckily, we have very, very strict biosecurity. We definitely don't want Africanized bees in Australia. Yeah, absolutely. So we also have Australian honeybees. We do. We have native stingless bees, yeah. So we keep them at Parliament. They're really kind of cool. So there's three, there's about 30 species of communal honeybees in Australia. And these are our native stingless honeybees. So they don't sting. But they're like everything in Australia. It wants to kill you. Some of them just can't. They they're very very they they pinch, but they don't sting. But they form. They've got a. They're much smaller, so they're smaller animals for starters. They're they're about the size of a fly. But the other thing is they've they've got this beautiful. If you look it up, look it up Tetranagula or native stingless bees, you'll see this amazing beautiful spiral architecture. So this perfect Fibridarchi spiral in their brood brood chamber. And then instead of honeycomb, they have they have little bags of resin, and they they put they hang little bags of resin through their hive, and they fill them up with, with their with their honey, and their honey is known as sugar bag. So indigenous people would um, would rob uh, the sugar bag bees, but interestingly, they would eat the, they would sometimes eat the honey, but they, a lot of the time they would they would keep the honey. It was a very powerful medicine, so it's a very strongly antibiotic. So it's equivalent to monica honey. In terms of antibiotic activity, and sometimes exceeds it, I and mean, they would use it for for as a topical antibiotic to, to basically clean wounds. So they wouldn't they wouldn't give it away. They wouldn't eat it, although it would be given away as gifts between chiefs. So it's kind of cool. But yeah, so we've got these as as I sound, they're stingless, so you can have them really close to people. And a lot of schools and other public areas have have a stingless hive. The one downside is. In most situations, you can't have them south of Sydney, basically. So they need, they're very much a warm climate, a tropical and warm climates, climate bee. And they don't produce as much honey. They produce about half a kilo to a kilo per colony per year. Whereas for honeybee hives, you're looking at, you know, you're looking at you know, 30 to 50 kilos. So sort of, you know, not, not just a little bit more, like, you know, orders of magnitude more. So yeah, so you're looking at they're kind of they're kind of lovely though, and they're they're quite subtle and clever. So I really I really love them. Um, we do keep them in Parliament. We have them in Canberra. Canberra's very cold in winter, so we can't keep them here over winter. People have successfully done it, but it's a bit of a risk. So we move them, we migrate them to Sydney, and it's part of a bit of a study and experiment we're doing with a a hive maker called Hivehaven, and they they produce a, a particular type of native bee enclosure that is is really good for it has really really thick insulation and it's also designed to allow us to migrate them more easily so they're a backup you know if we were to lose honeybees due to disease having native stingless bees to 
pollinate crops would be really useful and potentially a nice backup. And also they're better at pollinating some crops, particularly macadamias, but also potentially avocado. So we're looking at these species to to basically help supplement our existing population, existing populations of bees. Right. And is that Australian species the same species as the European honeybee, just a different variant? No, totally different, totally different, okay. which is kind of cool. So we keep, commonly there's about 30 species in Australia. In terms of ones that would be kept in hives, there's three of them. Two Tetranagula, which is a totally different genus of from Apis. Apis mellifera is honeybee. Mm-hmm. A Tetranagula is the stingless bees. You've got tetra, Tetranagula carbonaria, and that's the that's the one we keep, and they're they're the most common one that people keep. You've also got Tetranagula hoxonii, which is just kind of a more a, a slightly bigger and slightly more aggressive native uh, stingless bee. And then you've got Ostrobee. Oh God, I can never pronounce it correctly. Ostropelia, I think it is. And they're, they're kind of interesting. They have, instead of resin pots, they use more like a wax pot. So their hives are much more delicate. It's sort of like, almost like working with something made out of crystal or glass. You know, it's very, very delicate, mm-hmm. easy to damage. So beekeepers that keep that species tend to be really, really subtle and really gentle in how they go about things. So you've got a couple of different mm-hmm. options there. But certainly like in Brisbane, Brisbane, Darwin, you know, North, North Queensland and, and all through <laughs> coastal New South Wales. Yeah, the uh, the native stingless bees are becoming really popular. Uh, there's, they'll often, local councils won't kill them if they find them in, you know, their water pits or something, they'll actually rescue them. And there's a wait list to, to get colonies, like quite a significant one, because people just love having them. So before you were talking about there are laws regarding which bees we can import in terms of biosecurity rules. Are there any other laws regarding beekeeping in Australia? Definitely. You must register. So everywhere you must register your honey beehives. You don't need to register your native beehives. You can just go nuts there. Go go for it. But your honey beehives have to be registered. You have to usually maintain in urban areas. There's a whole range of guidelines, mostly around managing swarms, making sure you're not letting swarms out unnecessarily which is great. Also maintaining quiet strains of bees. So you maintain, a, you know, you don't let your bees become defensive or aggressive towards your neighbours. And usually limits on, on how many colonies you're allowed to have. And that's a really good thing, like we talked about before, about the environmental impact of bees. It's mostly around about density. So if you have too many bees in the one, too many honeybees in the one spot, they'll overwhelm the, the native pollinators. Whereas by putting some limits on how many bees people are allowed to have in their backyard, it does keep that down a lot and it reduces the likelihood that we're going to get a negative impact. And the other thing you, so yeah, so there's, there's limits on that. Now that's the, and normally you have to do, there's a, a minimum number of inspections. So in New South Wales and ACT where I live, it's two inspections a year, which is not enough. Like you would normally do many, many more than that. But that's the sort of the minimum legal standard is you have to open your hive and check the brood at least twice. And in New South Wales, you also have to do a particular biosecurity test called a sugar shake. And that's looking for an exotic pest that isn't here yet. But the idea is if we get every, make sure everyone's looking at least once a year, then we'll, if it does sneak in, we'll, de- we'll have a better chance of detecting it. So yeah, there are, so honeybees, there are a series of legal requirements. So it is a, and I think that's good because it it highlights that it's a pretty serious undertaking. You know, keeping honeybees, you know, you are keeping livestock. You can get it wrong. They can get sick. They can die. You could accidentally spread disease if you're not careful and if you don't do it properly. So you do need to, to think think it through and, and consider whether you have the capacity and the and the, the room and the, the, the time to look after them. Absolutely. So... One of the benefits for keeping honeybees is that you can eat the honey. <laughs> but I guess exactly, there's, there's yeah. a whole lot of other benefits as well. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the thing like, I, I love about honeybees is they change the way you see the landscape. As a botanist, we would mostly, I'm mostly a native, native uh, grassland botanist. We're not looking at flowers that much. Flowers are only out for a few weeks. They're not a very good diagnostic. They're sometimes they're important, particularly for orchids, but for most of the time, we're looking at the, the forms of the tree uh, or the forms of a grass. We're not actually looking at the flowering parts. So becoming a beekeeper does make you sort of look at the flowers a lot more and makes you think about how, 
how 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 your landscape's being managed, not by you. And it's, you know, it encourages you to try and influence around the landscape. For instance, pesticides become really critically important. If someone is spraying their, their flowering tree and your hive finds it, it's a big problem. So it's all about trying to manage that pesticide impact on, on the landscape. And that helps. And that's one of the things where bee, having beekeepers helps everything because that doesn't just protect honeybees. That then protects all the other pollinators using that, that area. It also reduces the impetus and provides pressure to control pesticides in the landscape, which is really good. But also it, it, there are a whole lot of products from hives that are kind of fun. You know, it's not just about the honey. Like I said, the main product is pollination. When I got my honeybees, I sort of, you know, sheepishly went up and talked to the neighbours and said, look, and I'm thinking about doing this because I wanted, I, I got the bees into pollinated apricot because we weren't getting good fruit set. We weren't getting enough fruit set. And my mm-hmm. partner, she loves apricots. So I was like, all right, I know what that is. <laughs> I know how to fix that. We'll get a, we'll get a honeybee hive because that's the, they are the pollinators for that European plant. And when I mm-hmm. talked to the neighbours, they immediately, they were all enthusiastic. and said, oh, where are you going to put it? Great. And they all moved their veggie patches right next on their side of the <laughs> fence, right next to where my, my honeybees were. And, and we, all, we all had just fantastic yields. You know, the yields go up a lot. And it's not just fruit and vegetables. The, the Swedish embassy, they, they brought me in to, to help them because they wanted to put in both honeybees and native bees because they were creating a special garden to honour one of the botanists that came out with Cook's Voyage of Discovery, so a guy named Salander. And he was a Swedish botanist, a very quite a famous one. So Banks is the one we sort of all learn in school, but actually Salander was one of the other botanists and was one of the key people. He just didn't become as famous as Banks, but they were creating a garden to to celebrate his life and celebrate the plants that he'd grown or that he'd identified. And they wanted the plants to bloom really intensively. They wanted to really get a good pop of the flowering. So they said, you know, if, if we bring bees in, will they flower more intensively? And said, yes, they actually will. If a flower's been pollinated, if a plant no, rec- plants can actually right. recognise that they're being pollinated, they work with the bees a lot and they'll put out more flowers and they'll put out, like they really huh. bloom more intensively. They actually direct more energy to the flowers if they, can, if they sense that there's pollinators around. So you actually get really a really nice pop in, in the flowering of your garden if you've got a good diversity of pollinators. And uh, that definitely was the case. They, they have this amazing native garden uh, but also they've got European trees and plants, but they've got this native garden at the center of their embassy. And it's just fabulous. It looks looks amazing. That is so interesting. I've never heard that the more pollinators you have, the more flowers you bring on. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a sort of a it's something if you're outside of agriculture, you don't sort of see this and you don't sort of recognize it that it's a really big part and it's it's how they pollinate as well. So I handle pollination for a small specialty orchard and they grow, I think it's 150 varieties of apples and about another, probably about 200 other varieties of other plants. And it's an organic orchard. It's, it's, it's a specialist orchard that produces fruits and vegetables for the, the, the high-end restaurants in, in the city. So when a, when a chef wants to be snooty and doesn't just want an apple, wants a, you know, a Gravenstein apple in the style of the you know, <laughs> 18th century, um, they they grow this for them, but what it means is you've got to have I've got to have lots of honeybees and lots of other pollinators always working this orchard, and with pears it's really interesting. Pears put out a great example of this. They put out what's called the king flower, so they'll put out a single flower. There's a cluster of other flowers around it. Now, if that single flower that they put out, if that gets pollinated intensively, and it has to be pollinated not just once, has to be has to be visited several times. The plant goes great. We've got bees around. Perfect. Let's you know. Let's try and make some pears. So then all the other flowers come out, and that's your crop. So if you early in the season, if you do not get that first flower, if it doesn't get visited by bees, you basically get no crop. So and the, the plant very much is putting that that big initial flower out. It's quite a big flower. So you can't miss it. It puts it out to sort of say you know to test the water to see if there's enough pollinators around to be worth putting the energy in to try to produce lots of lots of fruit and if not then you know it's a good strategy from the, the plant from the, the pear tree because it's a it's a long-lived tree you know it doesn't have to make it doesn't have to try and produce fruit to to pass on its genes every year it can afford to bide its time a little bit so you, in a production sense where you're producing that for food 
you want it to, to flower intensively every single year, you want it to set fruit every single year. So that means early in the season, I've got a, I'm checking those flowers. And when I see them start to come out, I actually I sort of, in a way, talk to the bees. So I actually give the bees a feed of sugar water. Not a lot, only a little bit, but it's a couple of, couple of litres. And what that does is that signals to the queen that, hey, we're on, you know, time to get to work. Because they're all sort of tucked away in, in inside the hive eating their honey at that stage. They, they don't have the advantage. I've got the advantage of long-range weather reports. I can wander around the orchard, see what's about to come out. And when I see that flower about two to three weeks out, that's my signal to start giving the bees a, a feed of sugar to say, let's go, let's go, you know, off we go, time to, time to get to work. And they'll usually ramp up production and start making lots of baby bees. Right, that makes a lot of sense. So you give it to them in a liquid form, and that why would that wake them up as opposed to the honey they've been eating? Well, it simulates a nectar flow, so they won't actually they won't actually make honey. I'm not giving them enough to make honey because I don't actually want to taint the honey that I make later in the season with sugar. I want to have a pure honey, so I give them enough to make them think that there's lots of nectar in the environment, and that that's the signal for the queen because she's waiting to to sense. So the queen is waiting to see what the foragers are bringing in, essentially, and the the the, the whole organisms sort of working like one big team and so she won't ramp up production until the foragers start to bring in lots and lots of nectar because that's the signal okay you know everything's growing now you know it's spring spring has sprung there's lots of nectar coming in and you see that it's called the, the spring nectar flow and the bees respond very strongly to that and so what i'm doing is i'm essentially giving them early warning i'm sort of simulating that and like almost making a fake nectar flow to 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 make her to signal to her to the queen, but it's time to you know it's go time. Well, actually, really to the colony. That's the main um, mindset change you've got to have when you keep bees. There, no bee is in charge, especially honeybees. The bees aren't like there's no single bee directing things. Colony is making decisions, and you're actually dealing with a whole the whole group of them, not just one. Right. So, what are some of the main challenges that beekeepers face? I mean, in Australia, in, globally, it's climate change. You know, climate change is really bad for bees. It puts the flowers out of sync with the, the colonies. The flowers will come out too early. They'll come out too late. It, it throws everything out of whack, particularly for native bees that are where they're reliant on one type of flower. That's disastrous. You know, that can actually take out not just the bees, but also the pollinated the species they rely on to pollinate. So that's that's the big like climate change is definitely the big one. And putting the flowers out of sync as the weather sort of gets out of sync and becomes more variable, that's the big problem. The other one is climate change does a whole lot of bad things, especially here in Australia. So heat waves, heat waves are very damaging for bees, especially honeybees. So their wax will can actually, if it gets hot enough, the, the bees will, will start cutting water and they start spraying water on the outside of the hive and then fanning their wings to cool down. But that works up to a point. But when you have a long, especially a long extended three, four days of, of heat wave, they, they run out of puff basically and they can't keep cooling the hive. And once it gets too hot inside the hive, it kills the brood. The babies basically cook, but also the wax loses its integrity, loses its strength, and you get what's called a slump. And a wax slump is disastrous. It kills the colony like because the whole colony just sort of collapses in on itself and suffocates them. It's horrendous. It's really, really bad. I know a few beekeepers that it's happened to a few summers back, and that was was really they were really upset. Actually, they were, they were definitely in tears. It was awful. So that's that. There's also overuse of pesticides. Not so much of a problem in Australia, but it does happen. But overseas, it's a big problem, particularly some of the systemic pesticides like neonicotinoids that incorporate into the plant and incorporate into the soil and stay in the soil for a long time for years. You can still buy them here, which I think for home garden, I think is nuts. It's like being able to buy a bazooka. I'm down in your local shops. It's it's the, these chemicals are so much more powerful than than sort of amateurs should be handling. And that's that's the one thing that amazes me. They're very safe for us. Like they can, they definitely can't kill us, but they can do a lot of damage. So that's that's overuse of pesticides worldwide is a big problem, and then pests and diseases. The the big killer of honeybees overseas is the varroa mite which is like a bee tick and it spreads disease and it's it's it weakens all the hives 
So that's a real problem. In Australia, the main disease, we don't have varroa mite. We're, we're sort of a bee haven and our biosecurity is paid off there hugely. So that's great. But uh, we have bushfires, unfortunately. We lost about 20,000 hives in bushfires. And again, that's a climate change impact. But we do have the main disease in Australia is American fowlbrood, which is a, a very, very persistent, very damaging disease. Once it establishes in a hive, the hive's dead. Like it's, it's just a death spiral. You have to euthanize the hive. But the one good thing is it's relatively straightforward to control. You know, it's mostly spread by beekeepers being careless and swapping gear and or allowing a collapsed hive to be robbed by other bees. So as long as you, you know, if you're on the ball and you're inspecting your hives and you don't let them collapse and you don't swap gear, you maintain a good barrier system. Honestly, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty controllable. So we're actually pretty lucky here. We we are going to see increasingly severe impacts from climate change, but generally we won't see the we won't see the hopefully. I mean, I, I'm pretty confident we won't see the major problems of overuse of pesticides, and we we certainly won't see the same biosecurity issues they've got overseas. You know, touch wood, we we could, but it's we've got pretty good systems in place to prevent that, and they're they're so far so good. Yeah. Right. Almost everywhere in Australia, you've got a local bee club. In fact, all over the world, you've got a local bee club. And just get, get involved, you know, because it's a good community of, to help you. Beekeeping is a sort of a, a pretty social thing. Most of us who, who have gone well in beekeeping, we, we started with a mentor. You know, I'd, I'd recommend, I, I had a really good mentor, uh, Carmel, Carmel Mitchell-Pierce. She's a third-generation beekeeper and one of the true experts. So I was really lucky, and I had a great mentor. And and get and your local bee clubs are where you find a mentor, basically. And also, they've usually got training apiaries, and you can have a go at different hive styles, and you know, see what you like. And also, they run training courses. So certainly, certainly the club I'm part of, we run a lot of training courses. But yeah, so it's pretty good in that sense. Yeah, right. So what about YouTube and stuff like that? Would you recommend any channels, or do you really need to go to the actual club and sort of get involved that way? Oh no. This is one of the great things about sort of bees in general and beekeeping is we're sort of in a golden age right now. Like there's so much fantastic content out there. For for native bees, you've got really great tutorials on how to build native bee hotels. So you can sort of do it yourself and it's really fun. Um, for honeybees, the one I've really been enjoying lately is, is a guy called the Bush Bee Man. He's a bit of a strange guy, but he's pretty funny. And he's just got a really, I really like his... His style, he talks about, he actually will talk about the mistakes he's made and he doesn't like try and pretend to be this sort of fantastic oracle, but then he'll talk through, okay, I've made a mistake. Here's how I'm going to fix it. And he then talks mm. through that. And that's really great for beginners, but also people that just enjoy, you know, seeing how bees are managed because that problem solving is something that we all go through and we all still, the bees surprise us every day. I don't know a single experienced beekeeper who sort of tries to pretend that they actually know it all we definitely don't and the bees still we think they've got them we think we've got them figured out and then they'll do something just completely nuts that we just didn't realize they were capable of pulling off so yeah so i I really enjoy his style and i like his channel the one i I sort of like and there i've got to declare interest there sort of mates of mine but the the flow hive people that they have quite a good youtube channel it's kind of nice um, but they do sort of live inspections. I think it's every Wednesday. They just get out in their apiary and just do a live question and answer, and they just film themselves working their bees. And that's really nice. I've been on that. I've been on their on their channel once, and it was really fun. It's just, of course, it's it's nice when you live in the hinterland of Byron and you're up on the escarpment and you sort of your next door neighbours the Hemsworths. It's you know, it's it's life is good, <laughs> <laughs> but it is it is a spectacularly beautiful apiary and where they are it's it's kind of perfect so yeah those are the two youtube channels i sort of enjoy enjoy watching overseas there's some really nice ones as well um hillary kiani who's girl next door honey she's a specialist in in bee removals and she's really cool i really like her stuff and her her approach and the other really fun one is the texas bee works you'll notice her she's sort of Occasionally you'll see her on social media. She's the one who does bee removals from sheds and stuff without wearing a suit. Very experienced beekeeper. Don't don't try that at home, kids. <laughs> she really knows what she's doing. 
but yeah, she'll often you'll see sometimes she'll see her wearing a suit though. But yeah, she she'll often do a lot of she shows how to do really difficult, tricky bee removals. So that's kind of fun to watch. And I guess the bee removals are when you've got those feral bees that have sort of invaded a hollow in your house or in the environment somewhere. Yeah, yeah. You've got to pull apart a wall. You've got to cut open a log or a compost bin. So I was working on one. I was actually removing a feral colony from flower pots at the French embassy last week. That was kind of different. Cool. <laughs> yeah, they, they'd established these. They'd established these huge colonies. That established in these these three big flower pots. They just they were just storing them, and some a swarm went. This looks good. <laughs> we'll move in here. And next thing you know, there was sort of twenty kilos of honey in these pots. So the pots themselves are about twenty kilos, and then you had about twenty kilos of honey and bees in there. So it was. It was a two-person lift. It was a, it was a three-person job actually. We had the ambassador and myself and another beekeeper doing that, doing the work, and it was it was very very strenuous. But um, we got them out. We've got them into a managed hive now. It's all good. But that's the sort of thing. Yeah, you you do get some some unusual <laughs> situations. But yeah, cutting cut doing cutouts. It's called doing a cutout. So that's where you're actually cutting the comb out of a structure. It's a very specialized job. I don't do it that much because it is you do need a fair bit of gear. The one that you see that's really useful is a bee vacuum. And it is it sounds crazy, but it's it's exactly as it sounds. It's actually a vacuum cleaner <laughs> with a special attachment that the bees get sucked into a into a chamber which has a hive in it. So they they don't get injured at all because bees you know, being thrown up in the air and sucked around doesn't injure them that much or at all. So you sort of vacuum the bees, the bee colony off the combs, and then you put the combs into a hive, and you've got them in a chamber, then you sort of pour the bees back into their hive, their new hive. It's kind of a cool system, and a mate of mine, he does he does bee structure removals all the time. That's his job. And every now and then, he'll give me a ring and say, you know, are you free? You want to have a crack? So it's good, yeah. It's, it's Dermot Ashenon is the local, he's one of the local bee experts, and every now and then, I'm, I'm his dog's body. But, <laughs> His dog's body. Yeah, I, I just run around, do what he says. Oh, he's lackey. <laughs> yeah, he's lackey. He's lackey. <laughs> there are other words we could use too, but not on the podcast. Exactly, not on the podcast. <laughs> so, Cormac, is there anything else you'd like the listeners to know about? I guess the one thing they could kind of try is there's something that it happens twice a year that they could all get involved in that would be really, really useful for them to do. And it's called the Wild Bee Count. It's all called the Wild Pollinator Count. And it's run by a couple of fantastic environmental scientists, uh, Karen Retra and Mano Sanders. So they, and it's a citizen science initiative. So what they do is, it's a really easy methodology, but it's really powerful when we all do it. So in spring and in autumn, so they'll have one coming up soon, you just go out and for 10 minutes, you find a flower and you just record what visits the flower. And you can do as many or as few observations as you want. I usually do one a day. I walk over, I, I work in the parliamentary triangle in one of the departments, and I just walk over to the rose garden and I just record what's visiting some of the flowers. They've got lavenders and roses, and I just record what's was visiting. And you record that into a website, dead easy to do, but we're getting hundreds of we're getting hundreds and hundreds of observations. And the powerful thing here is that then sets a baseline. So when you said earlier you know, are we having an impact on our bees? Truth is, we don't know because people are watching honeybees because they're worth money. You know, they're, they're part of our agriculture. We, we mm. track the colonies and they're, they're registered and they're, they're certified. And beekeepers, you can, they go to beekeepers and say, how many colonies have you got? Have you got? And you, you have to answer. But for native bees, I mean, how do we know? How do we know how many of, how, what is the relative abundance compared to honeybees to native bees? How many native bees, different types of native bees do we have visiting? What is their, their population? And it's actually setting that baseline. It's the basic research that allows us to manage our environment. So if the one thing you could do, just look it up, look up wild pollinator count. It's, it's really fun. It doesn't take very long. It takes 10 minutes out of your day, twice a year. You can do, And over the course of a week, you can actually rack up a pretty decent number of observations. There's a little bit of a photo competition, uh, which is kind of fun. But that's the one thing. 
I sort of encourage everyone to do. It's something, it's a really good thing you can do and uh, it makes you more aware of your bees as well. So it's not a bad thing to do as a gardener. Yeah, totally. And there'll be a link in the show notes for anybody who'd like to do that. Great. That's awesome. Cheers for coming on the show, mate. No, thank you. It's, it's, we finally got there. Cormac was right to kick me up the bum for not having a compost episode. Rest assured that one's coming soon with a very special guest. Follow Cormac on Twitter and LinkedIn and check the show notes for more information. If you're into pollinating insects, you'll find quite a few episodes of interest in our back catalogue to help you create an attractive environment for pollinators. So that's funny because I've planted um, uh, snapdragons in my garden and I'm like looking at the shape of these things going like, what is, what is going to be able to get in there? And then I Googled it and they said, oh, yeah, bumblebees because they, they do the buzzing thing. So we actually have native ones yeah. that can get into that too. Okay, good. So I'm not wasting my totally, time. Totally, totally. No, you're not wasting your time at all. Called teddy bear bees, uh, Amagilla okay. bombiformis. Look them up. And they, they're hilarious. They look like a teddy bear <laughs> in bee form. They're just gorgeous. They're so cute. Yeah, hence bombiformis, which means, you know, shaped like a bumblebee. That's the Latin for that. And, uh, yeah, so bombus. Bombus is, is bumblebees in Europe. But, yeah, they're, 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 the, they're the analog for bumblebees in, in Australia is the, is the amagillas and some of the carpenter bees. But they're, you mostly get them in, in warmer parts. We don't have as many of the, the big carpenter bees. They're spectacular. I mean, they, they do actually look like a bumblebee. They're, they're red and yellow. They're huge. You can't miss them. Yeah, I'm, I'm wondering if I've seen them because there's some that I'm like, I don't know, just the patterns on them just don't look like a honeybee. Like I know a honeybee when I see it and I'm like, that looks like a honeybee, but something's just not quite the same about it. Yeah, that, that's almost certainly one of the native bees. Cool. There's the, they, some of them look a lot like a honeybee, whereas a lot of the native bees look nothing like the neon cuckoo bee. Looks, it looks like a wasp. It's actually a, a it's a cuckoo bee. It's it, it's a nest parasite of other native bees, oh, but okay. um, it's bright blue. Like it's it's called it's not called neon neon blue <laughs> cuckoo bee for nothing. Like it's it's absolutely iridescent. It looks like met- metallic. It's quite spectacular. Metallic green carpenter bee is another classic one. That looks amazing. It, it looks like it's a it looks like a robot. It's it's <laughs> made out of like it, it's it's metallic. It's got a really metallic sheen to its to its body. And bright green. Mm. Yeah, it's emerald almost. I think I've seen some bee orchids that look like that. Yeah, orchid bees. So that, that, that's, yeah, orchid bee rather. Yeah, that, that's that's the nearest thing we've got in in, right. in Australia. So the, the orchid bees in South America, I've, I've always wanted to go and visit and see them because yeah, apparently, they just, <laughs> ex, apparently they're just extraordinary. Though the creepy one I want to see is the, um, vul, the, the vulture bees. Like okay. they're creepy as fuck. They're they're a um, they're a carnivorous they're a carnivorous bee. So okay. like I said before, like they bees split off from wasps and became veg vegans, and then these bees went actually fuck that. Let's go back to eating meat. <laughs> and they've actually then specialised in car- becoming carrion feeders. They make honey by liquefying flesh. It is <laughs> it is horrifying like? and an amazing. Oh no! No one's been game to try it, but apparently they, they make they make a honey, and people have seen it. And chemically, they've sampled it. It's full of, it's full of listeria and salmonella, so it'd be dangerous <laughs> to eat. But you could sterilize it and then eat it. But no one's been game to try it yet because it's just also it's it's literally made from the liquefied dead animals yeah. that they find. They'll strip they'll strip a corpse in in you know less than a day. Wow. So they're taking yeah, the yeah, sugar like, out of the corpse. Yeah, their their gut is like this gigantic cesspit of 
bacteria that would would kill us. That that's what they use. They should, and that that's why Salmonella exists because a lot of a lot of insects use it to. That's their stomach bacteria. It's just oh. if it gets in us, it <coughs> us up. But for a lot of other species, that's that's their you know that's their jam. That's what they're using to digest food. So yeah, they're using I think it's Listeria and Salmonella. Someone did a really cool paper looking at their gut biome and how like you can actually tell that they were once. That's how they proved that they were actually once a, a flower eating bee. They were a pollination based bee that has has become has, has sort of gone back the other way and now utilizes flesh almost one species uses flesh almost exclusively. They're all they're South America. They but they look they look horrifying. They've got they've got like their jaws have become like these big spikes. These are these spiked mandibles <laughs> to, to tear up flesh. And right, they look yeah. horrifying, but they they look kind of cool. That is the coolest Basically thing. Basically, a nightmare bee. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Look look it <laughs> up. Look up vulture bees. <laughs> they they are they are absolutely stuff of nightmares. They they are the creep the creepiest bees ever. But they they look kind of they're so horrifying. They look cool. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like something out of Alien.